From Santa Barbara, California, the Timeless Voyager series, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers, psychic phenomena and the unexplained, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups, alternative health care, new technologies. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager. Hello, everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager. Today's guest is Dale Pond. Now, he's an internationally renowned lecturer. Dale has presented workshops and seminars at the Swiss Association for Free Energy Conference, the International Keeley Conferences, International Symposium on New Science, International Forum on New Energy, United States Psychotronics Association Conference, Science and Consciousness Conferences, Tesla Tech Conferences, and many others. Now, he says all this effort and a whole lot more not mentioned, and then bring this greater awareness to those similarly interested. To some extent, Dale says, this has been accomplished and is continuing with and through project. And if you remember, uh, we did a couple shows on that Dynosphere. The Dynosphere Force, Volume 1, several new books in various stages of completion. The SVP Cosmology Project and the SVP Vril website. I'm going to ask you about Vril there after we get done. There really is a bridge or merging of what some call science, but not technology, and others call spirituality, but not religion. In essence, they each, in their own way, are a search for greater understanding. Hey, Dale is a three-time guest here on Timeless Voyager, We've discussed the work of John Keeley on two previous programs. Today, Dale and I will explore the work of Victor Schauberger, who I'm sure many of you have never heard of. You told me when we talked a little while back that you had come across and are, are looking into learning about the work of Victor Schauberger. I had never heard of him, I'm sure most people that are watching right now have never heard of him. Why don't you take the floor for a moment? I've got lots of lots of images available. I'll try to bring them up when you want me to. All right. Um, Schauberger was a German scientist and engineer, mostly engineer, in the early part of the 1900s up through, I don't know, 1950, 1960, maybe. And... Uh, he is credited with having done some extraordinary things, absolutely amazing things. And um, the people who have been working with his work, trying to expand on it, trying to understand it, uh, have been working mostly with vortex forms uh, and the forces that make the vortex do what it does. And um, they have had limited um, success. But there's been a lot, and there still is a lot, of people working on his work. And in my case, I had heard about Schauberger 
decades ago. But apparently I didn't hear enough or I wasn't ready for it in those days because to me it was just a guy who watched trout stream and made vortexes and and so on and so forth and it really wasn't my focus. My focus was John Keeley. So I never looked at Schauberger. I did once. I read Colm Coates' book uh, whose title escapes me and um, okay fine. Well, last spring, an engineer friend of mine came by to visit, and, and he wanted copies of everything I had on Schauberger, because he was going to start a project with one of Schauberger's uh, products. And so I printed out all the stuff for him, and, and um, I, I noticed there was a book in there, so I printed the whole book for myself, so I didn't know what the heck's going on, you know. I'd read this book. I read this book, and I could not believe what I was reading. I mean, it just floored me. This man had a whole science and a whole technology that I had never heard about. Never heard a single soul talk about his science. They just talk about the shapes of his devices. And that's kind of typical, because um, in the years that I've been working with Keeling people and whatnot, I've noticed that they like the pictures. They go to the pictures, and they... They want to duplicate, you know, what the picture looks like and everything, but they stop short of studying the science. Well, that's what I do. I study the science and the physics. And so I read through this book pretty quickly just to get an idea about where it was coming from, and then I started back in word by word, and I started entering it into the wiki, svpwiki.com. And... I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This man had knowledge that it was no end to it. And in just a third of that book or so that I did the work in, and um, I kind of set a pace for myself to do this work, and I was doing a page a day into the wiki. And within three or four months, maybe five, I increased the size of the wiki by at least 30%, which is extraordinary, because this man has a whole new vocabulary. And while Keeley came at it from a quantum physics uh, context or perspective, Schauberger was more of a biological perspective. I mean, he was some kind of forest caretaker in, in uh, Germany, that's way, how he grew up, and Spent all his time out in the woods learning about nature and life by studying it. And he developed this entire science based on that biological perspective. Well, let me ask you a question because I, um, this is so new to me that, that I, I don't even really know for sure how, I'm going to, how to ask this question, but I'll try. When I was watching one of the um, uh, YouTube documentaries, on his life and for those of you who don't know how to spell his name it's right there on the book so that's why the cover up there victor schauberger what i was trying to understand was what exactly was he doing with what he calls the energy rev evolution or i'll call it a revolution because that's basically what it is what is your understanding well that's true <clears throat> 
Um, I think we got to go back to some basics here to, to answer that. Um, conventional science has ignored and continues to mostly ignore half of what's going on out there in nature. When you talk to conventional scientists, they, they refer to chaos. You know, the, the universe is running down into entropy. In other words, it's wasting away, it's dying. So conventional science could be said it's based in death, because that's what they're describing. But there's a whole other half that they're ignoring, which is the life side, which we call centropy in the SVP, where energy comes together and it forms. You know, you plant a seed, let's say, of an oak tree, and all this energy and this material and whatnot comes into the seed process to create that tree. So it's, the energy is coming into a center, being the acorn, and then according to the definition of the DNA and all that kind of stuff, it creates this tree. And it continues to bring in more and more of this energy and substance and everything that it needs to, to become a tree. When the tree matures and it's no longer growing and it, it dies, you know, and it eventually decays back into the earth. So that's the death side. The life side is what builds the tree, makes the tree what it is. And so Schauberger knew that. Keeley knew that. Russell wrote endlessly about that. And when you go through his book, um, Schauberger's book, or Russell's books, or the Keeley material on the svpwiki.com, we have dug into this thing of centropy and what is it and how it works and, and that whole nine yards. And they work, those three gentlemen, work with both of these forces, the entropy, the dying, and the centropy, the living. And therefore, they were able to do things that we cannot yet duplicate. We're getting closer. But there's a lot of stuff in there that we don't know about because we've never been taught about it. It's kept away from us. And, you know, it's just not there in the books. And uh, But here are three guys that not only recognize that principle, both principles, but they built entire technologies based on it. So they got to a place where they could understand it. They got to a place where they could engineer it. And they built machines that worked off of that. But both those principles working in, in, uh, together, bring in energy and put out energy. Let me ask you really quickly before I bring this up. Is it svpwiki.com? That's correct. All right, so I'm going to put it up so people can see it. There we go. That's exactly it. There, I've made, I've been working on that wiki for years. In fact, I noticed one document I entered this morning when I was doing some editing, and it was a neat article. I don't remember seeing this, and I looked it up when I input that article. It was in 2011. Hmm. So we've been working on this thing for a very long time. We have all the Kahili material that we could find is in it. We've put a lot of the Russell material into it. And last summer and fall, I put a whole bunch of uh, Schauberger material 
and also material from standard physics and a lot of other people. I mean, there's like 14,000 entries into that wiki. And it's a very valuable way to conserve information because you can hyperlink all this stuff together because they're all talking about the same thing, but they're all coming at it from three different perspectives. Keeley was pretty much quantum physics. Russell was his philosophical uh, thing about it, and he included all these principles. And Schottberger comes at it from a biological perspective, which means I had to dig into biology and chemistry and all that kind of stuff, which wasn't in the wiki, so it, 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 it uh, grew the wiki by at least 30% in just six, five or six months. Which is good, because here's the big deal. We never found Keeley's writings. We found a few, but we never found his books. He wrote uh, four or five books, never found them. Um, we put in considerable Russell material, but Schauberger, Schauberger's got the details that we didn't have in Keeley's work. And that's important because, you know, I was work, doing this work for two or three months, you know, and I was just inputting the data and inputting the data and inputting it, which is very arduous, by the way. And all of a sudden I started saying, well, this man had a system and all these details. He had all these details in this book. I could, I could hardly believe what I was finding. And I, and I input all that stuff in the wiki because I wanted to tie his details into the Keeley material because we don't have details in the Keeley material. But Schauberger fills in a lot of those details. And I was really excited. So I pushed myself and pushed myself. And as I told you, I had this big, uh, not a breakdown, but I guess it might've been a breakdown in mid-November because I just pushed myself too far. So anyway, I stopped. I haven't looked at Childburger since, but I will. I will get back into it because uh, he's got the details. But if you don't know the basics that we have isolated, identified and isolated in the SVP work, you wouldn't see the details. You wouldn't even know what the guy was talking about. And I think that's part of why we see a lot of people trying to replicate Schauberger's machinery and his designs, but you never hear anybody talking about his science. And I can appreciate that's not a fault. I'm not faulting anybody. I can appreciate why that may be so because his science is tough. And I'm no dummy and I've been in this thing for a very long time and he just took me to task to wrap my mind around what he was saying and, and how does it reference directly to Keeley's work or Russell's principles and laws that he identified so many of. And it all ties together. They're all doing the same thing. What is he, what exactly is he telling us or what is this about his work? Like I see this, this machine, for instance. I mean, I know that this is something about the swirling of of uh, of, uh, of water in a vortex. I know that that's possible. What the thing is, but what is that actually about? What's the purpose of knowing that? Um, 
It's complex. There's nothing really simple about Schauberger's uh, tech. And um, he identified these two principles, the incoming force and the outgoing force, which is the heartbeat of the universe, by the way. That's what all three of them identify as. And it's the harnessing of that incoming force and outgoing force in various mechanical ways. These guys were preceded computers and all that kind of stuff. So they were working with hard machinery, hard metals, analog, you know, it's analog physics to um, generate more force, usable force. And Schauberger would, would uh, run water through his machines, water and air usually mixed, and sometimes different gases, in such a way that they would, they would form these vortices in his process of replicating the three main forces that he understood to be dominant in his physics. So he was trying to duplicate those motions within his machines using water and air as working fluids. And in that process, you know, when you spin something like that, you're going to polarize the media, whether it's water, air, gas, whatever. He made a lot of reference to those motions. In fact, his entire machinery is all designed around to achieve those particular motions. And... Um, which, if you look at those motions and you look at Russell's drawings or what Keeley was saying about some of his processes, it's all the same. They're all using the same thing. And so it wouldn't do as much good to just replicate a photograph of one of Schauberger's machines and expect to get anything right. We need to go look at his physics and his science and his philosophy and his descriptions of what all that is about to develop these motions via the mechanical constructs. And um, we see these motions in pretty much everything that's out there, but we don't really see them all together in one machine. So, I mean, when I look at this, I, I, for example, orbital motion, that I understand just because that's how the planetary systems are operating. Um. Rotational motion, I don't really understand, but I know that the Earth rotates. And then the circulation motion is, I think, what happens in air, water. Um, the whole environment is operating this way. Is that correct? Yeah, kind of. The orbital motion is there's our sun and the planets vortexing along with the sun as it travels around the galaxy. And then the Earth spin is rotational motion. And this circulational motion is, Russell spoke a lot about this, a lot, and as did Keeley. And these are the four incoming forces into an entity like an atom or a quark or something like that. Now these are etheric forces coming into the center of it and leaving the center and the uh, transverse arrow there with two arrows on each end of it is the transverse mode, uh, what Russell referred to as elliptical uh, plane. 
of an atom, which, so we got the molecular, atomic, and etheric motions. All so what people, what people normally see is they see the direction, which is the, the straight line arrow. I think what he's saying is nothing really goes in a straight line. It's actually using that orbital motion to go forward. Is that correct? Yeah, that's not a straight line. Sun's orbit is elliptical. But what I am saying is that there are really no straight lines. Right, right. That's a that's an intellectual concept that's not true. And yet, whenever you open up a major textbook, you'll see that over and over again, straight lines. Well, they got to start someplace, and that's... Uh, well, 1D, and then they make it 2D, so you got a flat plane, and there's no sure. real flat planes. And, you know, they got to start somewhere and work with what they got to work with. This is part of the greater science that these guys are working. It's all curves. It's all vortex motion. Every single one of them said the same thing. All motion is vortex, which means all motion is in a curve. In a curve. So... Schauberger ties a lot of this together because he's got so much detail in this book. And I'm only in the one of four, by the way. That book is volume four of a four-volume set. Hmm. And Schauberger didn't write those four volumes. He wrote a lot of uh, articles for magazines and newspapers, whatever. And Colm Coates, bless his heart, compiled them all into these four volumes. And he did a masterful job in translation. I've worked in translation before myself. This guy did a really good job. Super job. So we got these three forces, or three different curvilinear motions. And um, Schauberger designed his machines to incorporate all three motions active at one time. And that's, and that's pretty much, well, it's part of the story. <laughs> you get well, there, you get there. You get digging into details, and there is a lot of details. Oh, my but God. What, so let's look at the pragmatic side. What is an example of, of, of a way that he would improve something we're all familiar with because of these motions that he's observed? Uh, the one he was really famous for is uh, being a forester. He was dealing with forests and timbering and all that kind of stuff. And the timber industry back in the 1930s didn't have the equipment knowledge we have today they were standard uh, process was to build a flume out of wood and flood the flume with water and throw your log in the flume and the flume would carry the log down to the sawmill from the top of a mountain and Schauberger said well there's a better way to do this so he created a curving flume instead of a straight flume you get the right curve on it, and the water would slosh against one side and slosh on the other side, and it would carry a lot more timber a lot faster with a lot less damage on the flume. Hmm. So that was a big thing that he did that benefited industry. And the guys over in Europe right now are really exploring this flume idea because they're still... Uh, there's better ways of doing things than we're doing. You know, the Army Corps of Engineers in this country, when they go to fix a, a riverbed, 
they just dig a big straight ditch one into the other. <laughs> yeah, I was going to just—I was just going to say, um, we went through all of these uh, floods out here in California. Yeah, well, and all of them. Okay, I won't say all because I don't—that's probably yeah. one that. Wasn't, but most yeah. of them were caused by the way that we are transporting water. Right. And so I noticed in, in the uh, film that I watched, the documentary on him, he had come up with this process, which was apparently, he said, here is how water actually works. Now, when I looked at it, I thought to myself, well, this is the old, the old one about, you know, water finds the, you know, the least resistance and so on and so forth. I didn't even think of it as important. Well, all of a sudden, I looked at it closely, and he has, looks like a big snake. And whenever you see a river, it's always this particular uh, pattern. That's when I began to understand that he was about these patterns. And if you replicate the pattern, then, and you use the word flume. Now, I don't know if anybody knows what it is, but it's a way, it's like a, um, if I describe it, it it looks like something you'd see in a water park where people would ride on this on this uh slide kind of thing and go someplace yeah well he but he didn't just make these water slides he made them according to and you correct me if i'm wrong he made them according to these observations he made about how water works and when you do that there's no more destruction of the of the waterway by the water it's now smooth and and, and fast is that right. correct or? that's a pretty good way of saying it yeah the water will slosh against an outside curve and then pull back in and make its opposite curve well when it it's like a sound wave you know it's like you and these guys are all talking the same thing when the water pushes to the outside there's a partial vacuum so to speak on the inside of that curve and it pulls the mass of water back over the other side. So they change positions. The vacuous water becomes the compressed water, and the compressed becomes the vacuous, and it pulls it back. So it's just a natural phenomenon. It's not rocket science. It's just common sense when you look at it. But most people won't look at it. They think they know it all, and they dig these straight ditches along these rivers, and then they, got it all, they create all this chaos because water doesn't want to do that. Water doesn't do that. Water wants to swing back and forth. Nature is about play, not about work and efficiency. It's about we're just going to float down here and rock back and forth and have a good old time, you know. And then he took. I I want to just interrupt for a second. What I didn't realize, and perhaps others don't realize, is that I don't know what the mathematics is on this, but it appears that the actual amount of, what am I going to say, power that the water uh, produces is much greater using his particular method. Is that correct, or am I... Uh, Yeah, because a straight flume or ditch, concrete ditch, like you see in California all over the place, uh, creates disturbance to its natural Hmm. flow patterns that's an important word too disturbance is very important yeah the reason i say it is not just because you said it but because um disturbance is what we're seeing i mean the roads collapse 
the water is being thrown right out into the ocean when we need it the most. It's just like going all over the place, creating floods, disturbing everybody, creating issues with housing, all of these mudslides. And when you first hear about it, it's news. And you go, oh, what a horrible thing. What a terrible thing. And they're like, what is this really about? Well, what is it really about? It's about the inability or non-knowledge that the Army Corps of Engineers, who are responsible for a lot of these waterways, either don't, they don't know it or they refuse to try it. And that's pretty much what, what uh, that was about anyway in his life, I think. Am I correct in that assumption? Or? Yeah, he was trying to work with nature instead of using the ego perspective. Our engineering says straight line's the best, which is man being arrogant and ignoring nature. And Schauberger said, no, this is nature. Let's work with nature. So what's going on in California right now is, is a excellent learning opportunity. You know, they get out there and they start looking, well, what did we do wrong? You know, we we didn't work. You know, this this is a catastrophe, and it's a man-made catastrophe, in part, you know. If it didn't rain, you wouldn't have the problem. So part nature and part man. But man created those ditches. They're engineered the best they could at the time, but now's a good chance to rethink all that and try and work with nature instead of forcing nature to man's arrogance. And that's what Schauberg was all about. He said, these are natural processes, and he refers to nature over and over and over and over endlessly. And he was able to accomplish these different things. You know, one of the questions that bothered him early in his life was these fish were swimming up these waterfalls. And he said, how can that be? He said, a fish should be sitting there quiet, and all of a sudden, like a jet, take off upstream. And he, he studied those fish forever, and he figured out what was going on. I can't really tell you all the details of how, what it was, <clears throat> but it has to do with these motions that he identified. Because under certain, remember I was saying how the water, the weight of the water moves to the outside of a curve, but there's less on the inside. That's part of what the trout were doing. And... Um, but these are vortexes. This is what's created by the water naturally. Is that correct? Yeah. That's, these, these are natural growth of shells. And well, I'm just saying, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, he's showing this constantly reproduced over and over again in nature. Yeah. Exactly. It's a natural thing, a natural phenomena. And he dug into that, and he discovered some of the principles at work in these shapes. And he talked a lot about shape, too, by the way. Lots about shape. And, so uh, I, I know I interrupted you, and I, I know it was important. So if you want to continue, I'll just let that thing go. But I just wanted to... Well, not, uh, the secret is not just shape. you got to know why the shape has the shape it has. And that's what people aren't looking at. But that's what I do look at. I want to know why and how. You know, why Why you, Why not use another shape? Why this shape? And um, there are certain principles and laws involved that we find in acoustics, and, and Russell uncovered quite a few of them. 
and they're all listed in the svpwiki.com. You can go there and look up shape or form or vortex or what, whatever term you want to look up, it's in there. And follow the hyperlinks because they'll take you to more information. And um, just a, not a sales pitch, but to explain why I've put all these years into the SVP wiki is because back in the 80s when I first got into this, I realized, you know, I was reading all these different inventors and stuff and what they were saying and everything. I said, you know, these guys are all talking about the same thing. What we need is a dictionary. And so I've been all these years creating a dictionary, which is part dictionary, part thesauruses, part logging all their writings in their words, not me interpreting what they're saying, so we can examine what they're all saying in detail and hopefully develop a universal vocabulary so we can all talk to each other. The Schauberger people can't talk to the Russell people, and the Russell people can't talk to the Keeley people, and and it's a shame because they're all saying the same thing. Okay, let's reduce this all down to principles and laws. What I'm beginning to understand here, and I hate to attack the engineering community, but bottom line is we as a technology-based society are highly dependent on engineers. And so if they're going to continue to make things in straight lines, I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the ordinary city and skyscraper and bridges. I think probably of all of the stuff, bridges are probably the most, the ones that have changed the most according to uh, air currents, which at least you can see somebody's trying to do something. Yeah, but but they could do more. I think that's what I'm saying. And this seems like something that needs to be understood and taught, perhaps, in the universities that are teaching engineers. Do you have a comment on that? <laughs> we could spend the next rest of the day talking about Okay. That. You say our society is based on engineering. That's true, because we built the bridges and the roads and the houses. We built everything yeah. through engineering. But engineering, but society is based on money capital and money and those people who had lots of capital invested since the 18 late 1800s they didn't have perfect engineering knowledge but they had engineering knowledge and they went ahead and built everything they built using their engineering model and when Keeley came along Russell came along Shelberger came along says we can't let engineering learn this stuff. So we're going to suppress Keeley, Russell, and Schauberger. Otherwise, we're going to have to redo everything we did before, and, and we wipe out all that capital, all that investment, all that income from all that investment. So they suppressed all these people. That makes sense. <laughs> so yeah. They kept no, no, I mean, I, I understand completely, and I'm just, I think what, what I'm trying to point out, though, is this information that we're talking about, or at least my understanding of the information, is very important in the sense that I think these three gentlemen that you're speaking about have been corrupted. It's about the best thing I can think of, where their information has been corrupted because it opposes the engineering that everyone uses right now. Right. Now, you talked about money. The only thing that, that, that gives an engineer the ability to, to put something and into the world and manifest it 
is by having the money, and the money has to come from somewhere. People said, wait, we want you to do it this way, not that way. It'll get done, won't it? Yeah, but... So you're essentially, uh, hopefully, through this show, you're essentially make taking the approach that you're going to educate people about these people, about these gentlemen that you've spoken about, Keeley well, and Schoenberger. And- I'm not really educating people because I'm not really educated myself. Well, I'm bringing awareness of their work okay. into into a platform, into a single place. I'm connecting their, their jargons and their vocabulary together so that anyone so interested. You only got to go to one place. I spent my lifetime pulling all this stuff, finding it and pulling it all together and interpreting it and figuring out what they're talking about. And I did all that and put it in one place. So Joe Sixback, who's in engineering school, can go look at these alternative ideas. And if he finds something he can incorporate in his new bridge design or whatever he was trying to do, he doesn't have to spend the time I spent finding all this stuff. Right there in the SVP wiki. And Keeley was suppressed to such an extent that back in the 80s, when I first got involved with this, I figured there was probably six people on the planet that ever heard of the guy. Mm-hmm. He was suppressed so hard. And now, you know, I've had 30 million visitors to my website. So that, that the aware, an awareness of his work has spread around the world. I've sold countless books, almost every country in the world. I think I haven't sold one in Mongolia yet, but I've sold mm-hmm. just about every other country. And mm-hmm. the same that's because they probably already know it intuitively, but that's just a, you know. Yeah, some of those uh, undeveloped tech, undeveloped uh, societies have developed some, some very interesting things because they didn't go through the regimentation and homogenization of Western schooling or indoctrination, ever how you want to call it, mostly indoctrination. And um, I believe that uh, there's a huge movement out there that people want to work with nature, but they don't know how. And because they realize there's something wrong with our society, the way we do things. You know, everything's square and flat and straight, but nature is curvilinear. It's all right, flat. there's nothing in nature that is square. Flat. Well, there is. There's crystals, you know. But they're not really. They're, I mean, they have angles, but I'm just. Yeah, well, diamonds are pretty straight, sure. and, and iron, iron pyrite is pretty straight. Okay. But um, not for construction. And we look at it and we say, well, why do we do it this way? And I can tell you why we do it this way. You know, you have a standard house built with sheetrock and two by fours and bricks. Because the machinery we have cranks out those shapes cheaper in that form. If you start to create uh, vortex-type shapes and patterns and round patterns and everything, we don't have machinery that can actually do that very efficiently, and they certainly can't do it economically. So they crank out 4 by 8 sheet of plywood, you know, and that's the cheapest way to do it, and so that's the way they're building houses that way, because it's a cheap way to do that. Well, the reason cheap is such a big deal 
is because, you know, you look at these old buildings and they, you say, well, how many man hours did it take to build these ornate cathedrals and stuff like that? Because they were done by hand. They weren't done by factories and machines. They were done by hand. And the reason that is, is economics. Um, when the Federal Reserve took over the printing of the money, you know, a dollar was, you could, a man worked a whole day for a dollar. Some worked a week for a dollar because a dollar was worth something. As the money became inflated, it became worth less and less and less. So you needed more dollar units to keep up with whatever you're trying to do. So there's, there's this pressure on everybody to create cheaper and cheaper and cheaper when they produce something. And so, yeah, you know, it's an artificial construct. You look at the old Roman roads, you know, and uh, my dad was pretty smart in these things. And I asked him one day when I was like a teenager, I said, how come those roads are still 2,000 years here and they're still working and our roads are breaking all apart? And he said they had a different economic system. So they could in, they could invest man hours into this stuff, which didn't cost anything in those days. But today, because money is worth less, we can't do that. We have to crank it out as fast as we possibly can, and we have to have this constant pressure to develop more and more efficient systems that make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because the money is getting cheaper and cheaper. And that's pretty much the way it is. Um, when they let, get me show you. let me, I know, I, I just feel like. Go ahead, yeah. I want to keep on, yeah, I want to keep on this thing. Tell me what this is oh man this is a secret of the universe here you know we can say how complicated keely and russell and schauberg are when you read their writings but underlying all that complexity is incredible simplicity and the fundamental motion of the universe um, is this what he calls the mill of god Russell called it the rhythmic balanced interchange. And it's a secret. It's the really big secret of the universe. And if we go back to Tom Bearden and his work, which is where I really got a strong uh, focus, um, he called, uh, well, Tesla. Tesla said there's infinite energy all around us that we can tap. Well, what he's referring to was what Bearden called the scalar or the scalar potential. And that's what the mill of God is, the mill, the scalar potential. And uh, Keeley called it latent force or latent energy or equilibrium. Schauberger used the term fulcrum or equilibrium or the one, which is another synonym for God. <clears throat> and out of that, which is the infinite energy Tesla talked about, comes these two polar forces, which in this diagram is called female and male, or negative and positive, which terms I don't like to use because they're kind of conflicting and confusing. I like the terms entropy and centropy because we know exactly what those terms mean. So if you disturb the equilibrium or you disturb the scalar potential, you get a polar kinetic force. And it's those polar forces that we can tap into, which is what why uh, Schauberger used the vortex, because the vortex automatically splits the um, 
equilibrium of a water flow into two poles. Seemingly opposite poles. You know, the water going down the flume sloshes one way, then sloshes the other way. So there's your positive and negative working together to create this natural flow with more energy than a straight line because a straight line has all this disturbance in it. And um, channeled naturally, you've got a natural development of a polar situation. And the polar situation can be used, it's used in electromagnetism all the time. And every other kind of usable force that we've developed over the years or the centuries. And um, that one source is from where it all comes. And these two guys, these three guys, stated over and over and over and over. Kiwi called it disturbance of equilibrium. He said, you disturb the equilibrium and you get this kinetic force. And uh, Schauberger showed it in his machines. If you stop and look in those terms, you see it all over his machines. And um, <clears throat> so if we're going to develop, and we are going to develop, a new technology, a new science, new power and energy in the future, we've got to go back to that basic principle. Out of one comes, out of one hole comes two poles. And those two poles can be put to work. These particular pictures show something that I don't understand, but I get I get the idea of. Because he was, I guess, unless I don't understand this, which is certainly possible, his whole thing was about the vortex that's created by water when it's it's spinning in a sense. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, partly correct. Those are the forms that he had to use to get the polarization, the two polar states. These would create and augment through a process called developmental evolution, a bigger and bigger polarization, which means more energy, more and more energy. Uh, you can't take a single little polarization like a tiny battery and drive a car with it. you got to have a big polarization, a big bias, so to speak, in electrical terminology. you got to have a big uh, uh, power differential between the positive and negative poles. And these spiraling coils allowed him to do that. Remember, he was pre, mostly pre-electrical and pre-digital for sure, certain, so he had to use mechanical, just like Keeley used mechanical and Russell designed and built a machine that was mechanical, electro electromechanical, <clears throat> which he developed tremendous heat from it for boiling water and whatnot, and also electromagnetic force. But it's all about the polarization. So his designs, these uh, horn-looking things and, and these vortexes, are all designed to create that polarization. And the rest of the machine is designed to augment that polarization so he had enough real power and force to work with. Same thing in all his designs. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I'm looking at, but I at least have an understanding, I think, of what we're talking about. Yeah, these were designed to capture that polarization in various stages of formation. And in these particular machines, 
he was using a number of polarization processes. It wasn't just one process. And he, he learned those processes in such a state that he could combine them into a complex machine. And um, Now, do we have any examples of, of, I know he has a couple of machine, pictures of machines. I don't know what they do. Well, two main machines, the repulsator and the repulsine. Is and this one of them? That's one of them, yes. And what did this machine do? Um, to your knowledge. I believe there's, they had two different purposes, and they were opposite purposes. I don't really understand what those opposite purposes were uh, in detail. You know, I just got in this book six months ago, so give me give me some time here to work with it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, yeah. I, they, they each have their own separate page in the wiki, so you can read what I have to date about those. Um what I think they are, and don't, you know, don't hold, don't me, hold, to you to it. Don't hold me to it. <laughs> one, one was for generating a, a powerful flow of water, like a pump. And the other one was designed to be a levitator device, to levitate. Huh. Because he saw gravity as a dual force, what he called levism or levitism, and he saw that in nature, and he said, well, what, is, how, what can we do mechanically to, to replicate this levitative function or principle? And it's very curious. I mean, I'm reading through this, and he's got ideas I never heard of, and I'm just saying, wow, this guy's got some insight. And I dug and dug and dug and dug. <clears throat> but basically now I'm just collecting notes on what he wrote. As I'm doing a notation and whatnot into the wiki, I, I, you know, my mind's going 60 miles an hour trying to connect his levit levitism with Keeley's levitation and Russell's gravity and all this kind of stuff. And he makes some very fabulous claims in his writings, which are new and they, and they boggle the mind when you first hear them. And he said, what the heck is he talking about? You know, and the more you dig with it and you start getting comfortable with his terms and his ideas, and you said, man, this guy's really onto something big time. And um, it is claimed by many out there that Schauberger's work with this levitating device is what the Nazis used to create a bunch of flying saucers. Well... I don't know. You know, I, I haven't got any data to prove any of that, but makes a good story, and the pieces do fit together somewhat. Um, Keeley made a flying machine in the 1890s, flying all over Philadelphia and the East Coast. And, and um, so there is this technology from two different highly uh, intelligent, genius-level people. You know, um, on another show that I did recently, we're talking a lot about UFOs. And I was mentioning the Vimana vehicles that were uh, written about and painted pictures um, from the Vedic scriptures. So they go back, you know, four or 5,000 years ago. 
And what I was saying at the time was, when you look at these Bamana vehicles, when you first look at them, it looks like uh, an artist's fantasy, because we are so used to the idea that the only way that we fly really is with an air, uh, airfoil. We, we can't fly anything without an airfoil, which for people who don't know what it is, it's a wing, basically. And the lift comes from the construction of the wing, and it has to go a certain uh, speed in order to, to get off the ground. Whereas these Vimana vehicles could be anything. They, they could be made out of stone. Uh, I mean, my goodness, some of these things look like they might have weighed four, five, maybe 20 tons, but they were flying in the air. Yeah. So the question that always comes up for me is, is this some type of anti-gravity that they had like four or 5,000 years ago or earlier that we have no clue as to how it works. And then you start talking about this, and I'm saying, well, yeah, here's something that we can't necessarily understand because when you are, quote-unquote, technologically advanced, you're also, quote-unquote, technologically blind. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we are now as far as this is concerned. Well, put yourself back in ancient history in those time periods. Those societies had thousands of years to figure things out. You know, we've only been doing it for a few hundred years. So what did they come up with? You know, look at those megalithic stones that weigh a thousand tons. You look at those old pictures of those fortresses and stuff they built out of these huge stones, and it's obvious they didn't have a problem moving big stones. So how'd they do it, you know? They had the knowledge inherited from thousands of years of, of society. You know, unfortunately, our schools have not given us proper education about what really happened in history. They kept it all away from us. And um, but you start going back and looking at these these old things with common sense, and you say, well, we couldn't stack two million stones together and make a pyramid today. I mean, it, it's financially it would kill everybody. <laughs> There you are again, financially impossible. Yeah, in our, in our, economic. because we're we're so. I'm, I, I know I'm talking over you, but I wanted to say, we're so um, attached to every single thing. We're attached with what does it cost to make it? Yeah, and cost uh, if you if you could eliminate that, there's no telling what we could actually construct. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and they did. I mean, there they are. Go go to Egypt. There it is, right in your face, over and over and over and over again. And all over the world, they they understood something about this that we don't know. I'll tell you a story. Um, one day I was packing my van to go to a conference someplace, and I was putting a dinosaur in the van, and the tabletop is a granite piece of granite weighs. 200 plus pounds which is too much for me to handle by myself and there was this guy there at the house he was visiting who had spent several years down in the desert smoking peyote and, and he woke up and he was there so I asked him would he help me I asked him if he would help load this tabletop into the van 
And I said, you know, got to be careful because this thing's really heavy. And he says, oh, is that right? And he grabs his end, I grab my end, and we lift it up. It had no weight. It weighed nothing. And we set it in the van like it was nothing. It was like fire walking. You know, you can't even get near those bed of coals. It's so damn hot. And, but when you walk around it a few times and you, and you get your mind in the right kind of place, you can walk across and there's no heat. I was walking across this damn this fire thing, embers, glowing red hot. You can't get near it from the outside. But here I was standing in it, and there was no heat. So brings us back to Keeley's technology and Russell's, where they're talking about mind force and how mind force is what the ancients used. And I mean, if that guy and I could lift a stone and didn't weigh anything, could we lift? A stone twice as big or 10 times as big and we didn't try it you know it, it was such a shock to me that i didn't think of that you know we should have gone out and tried to pick the car up <laughs> right <laughs> just to see if that was real and <clears throat> keely said all forces are mind forces russell said exactly the same thing and i haven't run into much mention of mind force in the Schauberger material yet. I've only gotten a short way into this book, and um, I'm just waiting, you know, to, to stumble on where he's talking about mind force and whatnot, because he has to, because that's what he's doing. You know, I don't care what engineering says. I don't have a degree. I don't have to defend myself to anybody. I'm just going where the research takes me, and the research has taken me to all these places, and we just have to adjust our awareness and our ideas to say, well, maybe that's possible. And look at it. Science won't even look at this stuff. They say, oh, that's hokum and that's touchy-feely, tree-hugging bullshit. No, there's something here, guys, and you need to look at it. And, uh, you know, people have been taught to be afraid to to step outside the circle, the box. You know, you got to get out of the box, guys. All these guys worked out of the box completely. And look what they did. We can't duplicate it. Why? Because engineering is, you can't hire an engineer who hasn't gone through the box. I mean, what's insurance going to say about that? <laughs> so some courageous people got to step up and um, say, okay, let's look at this. Like my engineer friend who came to me last year looking for Schauberger material. Here's a licensed, educated engineer who's not afraid to step outside the box, at least for this project he's working on. We need more of that. You don't have to be public and, you know, peer review and all that crap. Just look, ask the hard questions. You know, how'd they move all these stones and build a pyramid? You know, how'd they move that, those, that one stone and build back or bow back or wherever it is, a thousand ton stone? They didn't carve it to sit in the quarry. They carved it so they could move it where they wanted it. So to them, <laughs> moving big stones was nothing. Right. And of course, nobody had to pay them, or I don't even know how they were living. Yeah, I don't know either. They uh, they didn't have the same kind of an economy that we have right, right now. A different kind of economy. And they could well, look, we are. <laughs> I'm going to say, we we probably need to wrap this thing up. But you know what I was going to say was number one. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about this particular subject. I know that 
that it's it's uh, it's relatively new to you. It's extraordinarily new to me and probably to all the people that that's, have seen the show. And uh, hopefully now we've, and I know you don't like the term educate, but made people aware of, <laughs> and I will say parentheses educated, um, people in something that is new. This is actually new. It's old because it's nature based on the way, the way nature works. But I assume, and, and from what I'm looking at when I see that the, the way that our, our environment is right in front of us all falling apart, and how arrogant we are as humans to not realize our place in this. After all, <laughs> think of it this way. If there's no air, I don't care how technologically advanced you are, it's over. If there's no food, if there's no water, that's the part that, that, that makes me feel uncomfortable these days when I listen to people talk about science. You know, when you get up in the morning, I mean, I realize we're all reflecting the scientific uh, uh, issues that surround us. But the bottom line is we need to walk. If we can't walk, then we have to do something else. Uh, there are only so many drugs that can be made to keep people alive. And, and if the pharmaceutical industry doesn't exist, you can see where this is all going. So what is the problem? And the problem, of course, is arrogance, which is why I used that word before. Anyway, I want to thank you so much. Um, this was this was a very very, I think, ed educational show. I hope people will go to svpwiki.com, uh, look at your work as you're going along because you're going to be showing this as you're working. You post everything. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, anything you might want to say at the end here as we uh, wrap this thing up? <laughs> You've got the floor. Yeah. Um, there was a time I was very arrogant and I didn't know all about this stuff. I didn't know the spiritual side. I, you know, it repulsed me. You say the name Jesus or God, you know, I didn't want to hear it. It's all touchy-feely bullshit. But the more you dig into this, the more you realize that there's, there are forces out there and forces inside of us that can only be addressed by such philosophical underlings, underpinnings. And the more you look at it and you get into this mind thing that Keeley was talking about and Russell just expounded on it. Well, yeah, yeah, okay, these are types of consciousness. They're not foreign to us, they're inside of us. That's what we are. And, you know, it's not surprising we weren't taught these things because, you know, when you're stupid, you're controllable. But as you start learning what they really are, you become empowered, you become confident, your perspective, your horizon opens tremendously, and you don't see life and, and society as this uh, straight-jacketed crap that it is. Because once you step out of the box, you start looking back and you say, oh my God, how did we ever do that? And uh, the world's waking up. And there's millions of people all over the world who are expanding their consciousness and awareness and they're reading all these books and they're reading all this stuff and everything's accessible through the internet. 
you know, a guy sitting in Timbuktu can access the waking, just like the guy next door. Imagine what that means. And um, so we're doing it. It um, is tough and it's discouraging at times and, and, you know, where's the money and where's the support? But we're getting it done regardless. And this science is going to be the science of the future because our science is showing up its discrepancies, its inability to handle different things and do different things already, like California. Uh, we start shifting over this new awareness, this new consciousness. Uh, there isn't anything you can't do, and we'll be able to do it economically. But somebody's got to blaze the trail, and that's those three guys blaze the trail, and I'm just out there, you know, putting up signs. This Good. way, folks. <laughs> All right, Dale Pond. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. And for the rest of you, thank you for listening to the Timeless Voyager series. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.
Christian.